0: Hello and welcome to Your On Mute, a multi-award nominated podcast brought to you by BBI. I'm your host, Eunice Lumidi, and sharing some good news, I am pleased to announce we now have a charity, the Black British Initiative. Over the next 25 weeks, myself, Lord Michael Hastings, and fellow presenters will be interviewing an incredible lineup of leaders, icons, and change makers lifting the mute button. We learn about their life's journey, how they got their big break and ascertain how they balance the importance of commercial performance versus societal impact. The killing of George Floyd, Chris Cabot and other instances have highlighted how racial disparity has disproportionately affected the globe's black communities. One of the greatest challenges facing black entrepreneurs is a lack of access to funding capital, limiting aspirations, stunting growth, slowing innovation and preventing deep reservoirs of black entrepreneurial talent from being realized. Counterproductive for society at large, as we all know. With great power comes huge responsibility and this series looks at how those in positions of influence can use their status as a force for good. Our time together is broken into three sections, each one punctuated by the guest's favorite piece of music, signaling different stages of their life. So today we're joined by Abigail Rappaport, Global Enterprise Operations Director, and nominated as one of the most influential people in technology. Today we'll be discussing the importance of emotional intelligence in a technologically focused world. Welcome Abigail.
1: Thank you so much Eunice. I'm really really excited to be here and to just get more involved with BBI. We are
0: absolutely delighted to have you. Um, I hope we're going to have not only an informative discussion but I hope you'll have a little bit of fun as well. So before we kick off I'd love to hear a little bit about the music you've chosen. Uh, My
1: first song is by Supertramp, and it's the Logical song.
0: Oh, I love that
1: song. I used to listen to it so much growing up. And for me, it really typifies some of the struggles that I had as a kid at school trying to find myself. Uh, You know, the song talks a lot about, you know, society's expectations of people and how you should be and how you should behave and how you should act but I really felt like I was a square peg in a round hole sometimes and I just didn't really know how to find my place and so that song really typifies that struggle for me at that point in my life.
0: Amazing so you were born in North London tell us about your memories of family life and growing up. I was born in North London that's true
1: Um, my family however came from South Africa come from a family of immigrants. Um, My parents actually met in London. My mother came over um, when she was 14 with her family and they left South Africa. So my memories of growing up in North London, uh, I suppose are are reflective in in being in in a South African cultural environment, even though I was in North London. Uh, So yes, uh, I have a brother, an older brother, two and a half years older than me. Uh, and then I am the younger daughter, the baby of the family. And growing up in North London was calm and <laughs> nothing too adventurous in the early years. Things got a little bit exciting, and a little bit hairy later on,
0: but uh, things started out pretty normally. So I actually saw that you cite your grandparents as role models. Can you share why and the relevance of the Sharpeville massacre? Yes, that's
1: right. So, yeah, the reference to the Sharpeville Massacre was in the 60s in South Africa. And so at that time, my family uh, had been living in South Africa for some time. So my great-grandparents had fled Eastern Europe, Lithuania, um, during Nazi occupation because we're a Jewish family and it was not a very safe place to be. Some of the family managed to leave. Not everybody did, unfortunately. Uh, But the ones that did manage to leave went to South Africa to build up and start a life from scratch. And so if I think about my grandparents, they had to build up a life from nothing, came with nothing, just the clothes on their back. And they basically had to build up a life from scratch. And so I think that is a theme that has been with our family for many generations, which is... You have to make a life for yourself. You have to work hard. You have to find your own opportunities and don't expect anything from anybody. And really just by being a very strong family unit and pulling together at the hardest of times means you can actually move mountains. Uh, So that is something that has really, really inspired me. My grandfather built a business from scratch uh, in in South Africa um, and did very well and was very successful. But the pivotal moment for them was that they did not support the apartheid regime at all. Um, And I suppose the straw that broke the camel's back for them in terms of, we have to get out of here. We cannot be in this environment any longer. We cannot support this regime. We cannot support this government. Um, They left everything behind. So a successful business, a lovely big house. They left everything behind. Uh, So it was my grandparents with three children. This is on my mum's side. And they basically said, look, we cannot support this institutional injustice any longer. And we really need to go to somewhere where we believe with the values of the country. Uh, And so my grandmother is is British. um, So they came back to to the UK. But you couldn't take anything out of the country at the time. And so they left with three children, no money, no job, nowhere to live. And they they came to the UK, which was a massive risk for them um, and a big decision. But it was all in service of what they believed and what they stand up for and what they felt was complete and utter injustice and how they just weren't prepared to
0: support it any longer. 100%. Um, that's really interesting, actually. As you were talking, I was actually thinking about whether or not there's a significant difference between sort of then, if you wanted to come to United Kingdom and start from scratch as opposed to now in 2022, do you think... Mm-hmm. Obviously, that move and traveling was going to be a really, really difficult challenge to overcome. But do you think that perhaps it was, I suppose, economically or or societally easier to to make such a big move to the UK?
1: I don't think these kind of moves are ever easy. Uh, The journey itself was a boat trip uh, from Cape Town to Southampton, um, which took two weeks. Uh, so they had two weeks to process the fact that they were going to be leaving their home and their life and their friends and going to somewhere completely new and unknown. Maybe that's a good thing to have that kind of time to reflect and to talk about it as a family before you actually arrive, as opposed to just jumping on the plane and the next thing you know, you're in this new, strange country and you don't know where to start. Um, but I think it, it's 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 very very hard. And if we think about what's happening in Ukraine at the moment and people looking for safer places to to live, it's, it's I don't think it's ever easy.
0: So societal justice seems to be part of your family's DNA. Um, How did that sort of first manifest itself for you as a child?
1: Well, I remember going on marches in London, um, outside South Africa House, and, and demonstrating to free Nelson Mandela. Uh, So that was something that I had as a very early childhood memory, being, you know, being uh, socially active, having a voice, standing up for what you believe in. Um, pressuring governments to to do things and to change things for the better, uh, not taking no for an answer. And so I think that has been something that me and my family have have grown up with. And and you know you stand up for what you believe, in, even when it's not the popular opinion sometimes. Um, and that's hard. It's it's the path of most resistance, not the path of least resistance. But you really do have to st- stick stick your neck out and make a stand, particularly for people who aren't able to do it for themselves.
0: So I suppose I want to ask you something, just because I have a big brother. Um, There's just a year between you and your brother. Mine's is four years. Was there ever any kind of like sibling rivalry between you guys?
1: Yes, yeah. It's a couple of years uh, age different. And yes, there was. uh, I think uh, in my school years, it definitely kind of played out because he just seemed to be very naturally academic. And he found it very easy to pass exams and to do well at school. Whereas I just didn't seem to be able to apply myself in the same way that he did. And so I really felt sometimes like I was in his shadow. Uh, academically this is um and and that was a real struggle for me i found it very hard and you know looking back now it's hindsight the wonderful thing but you know i genuinely struggled and it was in, in the classrooms i loved the content i love the material i love the learning and being in that environment with a teacher but the moment i was left to my own devices i just i just couldn't organize myself i couldn't get my act together and i found it really really hard and so i started falling behind And it was incredibly frustrating because every single school report, every single year was she could, she has so much potential, she could do so much better if only she applied herself. But the problem was, I didn't know how to apply myself. And and looking back, you know, maybe it was something like undiagnosed ADHD or something, but I just was not able to, to organize myself and to prove myself in that environment, in that kind of school environment, in that academic environment. Um, So I found other ways to sort of excel and express myself, and you know I was very, I was very sporty, very into sports. Swimming was my main sport. I was part of a swimming team. I swam for you know the borough, the borough of Barnet. Um, you know I was always going to races, and you know so I found other outlets. But at school, I never felt like I was achieving my full potential, and that was hard in the light of my brother, who ended up going on to Oxford University, um, and. Uh, Yeah. And I actually ended up not doing great at school, um, you know, not passing with flying colours like my brother did um, and having to find my own path, which was, you know, a struggle at times.
0: Well, we have a lot in common in that respect, although I kind of feel like with my brother, it's the opposite, although I can definitely identify with. um, I kind of feel like I might have had something undiagnosed (laughs) as well. (laughs) because um, yeah I was really good at the actual work but I kind of felt like I didn't always understand like what was going on half the time so I was very much into my sports in school um, and I was always really conscious because I grew up um, in I suppose one of the most deprived council estates in Europe actually it has one of the worst life expectancies and so on but what my mum did is she managed to get me into like a really good school, which was just around a corner, but I think most people didn't realize it fell into the same catchment. And I always remember being completely blown away when I went to school the first day and just seeing how different life was and having like these extracurricular activities and taking sport quite seriously and going for rides. Um I remember actually a, one of my friends had a horse in their garden, which I didn't think was possible. Um, <laughs> and I remember actually never explaining to anybody where I lived because I just didn't feel that they would get it. And I do think that plays um, quite a, a large role in um, why I found school difficult, just not having mm-hmm. sort of teachers really being aware of the kind of additional support that. Different people need regardless of your background and so on. Um, now, when your brother obviously went to Oxford, as you mentioned, I had read that you had a little bit of a hand in the service industry, both here and abroad. Can you kind of expand on that? I started um, A
1: levels and I probably shouldn't have, but I just thought I could do it because I thought I was bright enough, but it's not good to, just to be bright enough. You actually know how to, you need to know how to apply yourself and you need to know how to uh, work within the school system, which I still hadn't learned at that point. So I ended up dropping out of A-levels in the first year. Um, so I would have been, what, 17 at the time uh, and, um, and deciding to get a job. Because <laughs> my parents had said, look, if you're not going to put in the, the work and the effort, then go, go get a job. I was like, right, I'll go get a job then. I had no idea what I was going to do. Um, so I found the first job I found was, was being a waitress. Uh, so I was a waitress in um in a, in a pizza and pasta restaurant and I was a very good waitress. I remembered everybody's orders and I got great tips because I was seen to be able to build rapport with people very, very quickly and very easily Um, But after three months of being a waitress, I really realized I did not want to be a waitress for the rest of my life. Uh, So I decided to try and go back and do A-levels again, but like in a crammer course, I had to do a two-year course into one course. And I wasn't actually really able to do that very well, but I just skimmed by with very low grades, but I just about skimmed through. But with you know, not particularly great grades, you're not really going to be able to get into university. <laughs> so I really didn't know what I was going to do and I was incredibly lost. And everybody around me, you know, they had done their A-levels, they've got great grades, they had a place at university, they've got their life all mapped out, so it seemed. Uh, and there I was, and I felt like I was standing on the edge of an abyss with nowhere to go. And so I decided I was just going to go, to, uh, go abroad or go traveling for a while. Uh, and I spent, and I took a year out and I went to Israel for a year. Uh, and so while I was in Israel, I was working uh, or volunteering on a kibbutz, which is like a farm where, you know, you kind of get pocket money and accommodation and you get your your food. Um, but you basically work in, in return for that. And so I got to milk cows. I got to pick dates <laughs> from date trees. I got to pick pomelos and melons and all sorts of other you know fruit that you can only grow in hot countries um but it was just it was it, it was a life changing experience for me because um during that time you know, you meet so many different types of people and you learn a lot about yourself when you're in a different country. I I would strongly encourage anyone who has the chance to go and live or work abroad or volunteer abroad for a while because, you know, you really do end up learning a lot about yourself once you remove yourself from, you know, from your family environment and uh, what you've grown up with and what you've known. It just opens your eyes to all sorts of new people and experiences and opportunities. And I think I really did start to grow up a little bit that year, um, because I had to, I was kind of independent, I was out there trying to make a a life for myself. So that year abroad, um, really was enlightening for me. And I actually ended up extending it to two years. Uh, you know, I'd met somebody out there and I wanted to stay out there. Um, uh, and, and so that ended up being two years, but after two years, I really kind of was getting itchy feet and I knew that I could do with more with my life. And I had to, I felt like I had to find a way back in, you know, I really did want to go to university, even though I had no idea how the hell I was going to do it. Um, but I really wanted to go back and I, I kind of got to come to the conclusion that business was going to be the thing that I wanted to do because I wanted to, to be able to have a, a job where I could be financially independent, um, it's a, it was a real role model, you know, you asked about role models before, one of my big role models is my mother, another one is my aunt, another one is my grandmother, you know, to think about female role, role models here, um, because they all worked and they all had that level of independence and that level, level of uh, financial freedom. Um, and I was always inspired by that so I decided that business was a good place to start because business is very broad and you can figure it out as you go along uh, so somehow with lots of help from my parents they managed to get me into what was called at the time a higher national diploma an hnd which is a kind of entry level kind of foundation course that you can take that then leads you on to other things and so I came back and I started the this hnd in business studies uh, uh, and that really is the big turning point in the next chapter, I suppose.
0: Excellent. So next, we're going to move into our second section and we have a track you have chosen, which I absolutely love, Alicia Keys, Girl on Fire. So I came back, I did
1: the HND, um, I did very well. I found it quite easy. That really gave me the confidence boost I needed to then apply for university. And the idea is after you've done your, your HND, you then are supposed to do a a three or four year university course. Uh, And so for me, um, the, the, I was, I didn't want to study for four years, (laughs) so I managed to blag my way into the second year of a business studies degree. Amazing. Uh, so I ended up doing the whole thing in three years, as opposed to four years, which was great, which is another lesson learned. If you don't ask, you don't get. You have to be willing to take the risk and put yourself out there and, you know, ask for stuff and be a bit cheeky sometimes. Uh, so, yes, I managed to get into university. I I really excelled. I did incredibly well. and I specialized in marketing. And then I went on to do my chartered Institute of Marketing exams. Uh, so then I was like a professional qualified marketer because that's the subject that really grabbed me the most and and so I started out my career in in marketing um, and then had lots of experiences around that so this this track Girl on Fire for me represents a time in my life where Things were going really well, you know. At last, finally, things were going incredibly well. They were going in the right direction. I'd found myself, I'd found a path myself. And even though I didn't know ultimately where it would lead me, it felt like I was I was really making good progress and I'd covered a lot of ground in a really short space of time. And it felt like I was making up for all of those years of. Not really performing at my potential and feeling like I wasn't good enough and I couldn't do it. But here I was proving to myself more than anyone else that I could do it. And that I was actually really good at what I did. And there was lots of recognition that came with that, you know, being able to get good jobs. Uh, and I had the experience uh, in my mid-20s to um, take a startup from the ground up with a couple of other people who would started it. We got involved very early on uh, and then within two years, we were able to uh, float the company uh, on the alternative investment market in the UK. Um, So, you know, mid-twenties being able to IPO a company. It was a small IPO, it was a small company, but nonetheless, the experiences were just phenomenal. You know, I would not have even dreamed that that was possible. In my mid-20s. And then that fueled on so many other opportunities that came after that. So Girl on Fire really represents that whole period of time. Uh, I then went on to uh, work in the tech sector, um, and I've been in the tech sector ever since. And uh, it is, for me, the best sector to ever be able to work in because you're constantly innovating. You're trying to, you know, we talk about, you know, business with purpose, business with value. For me, technology is something that can make the world closer together, bring people together, um, solve for problems that have not been solved for at massive scale, and really can have a big impact in terms of people's ways of working, um, giving businesses opportunities to do things better and smarter, and even small companies can now operate globally with the use of technology. So it, it directly impacts economic impact for small businesses, for large businesses, and so Technology has been something that I've really loved being involved in over the last 20 years.
0: You did mention earlier um, some of your role models. I was quite interested to know if you had any others outside your direct family members.
1: Outside of my family role models, one of my earlier role models was um, the CEO of a marketing agency that I was working for. And he was incredibly supportive and encouraging and saw potential, believed in me, gave me lots and lots of opportunities to try new things. Um, so uh, for, for the first part of my career, I'd only ever worked in small and medium sized businesses um, and I didn't really think. And understand what big companies look like and how they worked and how to work with them. And I didn't just, just didn't have that experience. And so when I went to work for this marketing agency, um, the, the CEO who I was, was reporting into basically said, Right, I'd like you to work on one of the biggest tech companies in the world, Microsoft. I would like you to work on the Microsoft account. Um, and that was incredibly exciting for me. And it just opened up so many doors for me in the future, which I hadn't even realized at the time. Um, And so he was a great role model. And I think not only did I learn a lot from him and his experience and how he'd built the business from scratch and how he was running a successful global, global business, but I also learned from him, you know, how to think in the way that a big company thinks and how to ask really important questions and sometimes difficult questions to get clients to really think through what it is that they're trying to do and to get in the mind of a client. And there's things that people will say and there are things that people will not say. And when you're working in a marketing agency or in a consulting environment, you really have to hone the skills to be able to understand the nuances of what isn't being said sometimes. And so I think that is a big life skill that I learnt from him, definitely. Um, and then I've had um, some managers along the way that have been incredible mentors as well. But I think for me, the way I think about mentors is what is it that you're trying to do at any point in time? You know, it could be in, personally in your life. It could be in, you know in your work or your career and who are the people who are doing what you would like to be doing in say five years time, who are those people and then looking to figure out who are those people that you respect, that you admire, Um, or that you'd like to be like in the future, and be really proactive in terms of contacting those people and asking them to be your mentor. And it's surprising, some people will say no, because people are very busy (laughs) and they don't always have time, but it's surprising um, how many people say yes. So, you know, for people listening, for the audience here, um, you know, mentors are incredibly important, but you need to reach out and be proactive.
0: Now, you experienced how technology played a successful role. I wanted to talk about the application of speech recognition in your next role at a time, a piece of uh, military technology. <laughs> yeah, so, so the
1: first technology company that I worked in, because I started in financial services, the IPA was for a financial services company, and then I moved into technology. Uh, Because as part of the the IPO, we needed to build up a customer contact center. And that was something I'd never done before. And part of what you need to do to set up a contact center is you you need to have the technology to be able to take the calls, route the calls to the appropriate person. In some cases, you need to... Record those calls, and I just had never had that experience before. And so, uh, so I started to work with technology companies to figure out, you know, what they could do for our business. And I, and I just, it was like Pandora's box for me. You know, once I'd opened the lid, I was like, oh my gosh, there's so much in here that I didn't know, that I didn't understand. And there's so much that this technology can do, and we're only scratching the surface. Um, so I ended up going to work for a a contact center technology company. So. The innovation was Israeli. The company um, was globally headquartered in New York. Uh, the company was called Converse, and this division was called Infosys at the time. It's changed its name since then. Uh, it's now variant. Um, but a it, was a, it was my first uh, regional-wide role. It was Europe, Middle East, and Africa. Up until that point, I'd only ever really done UK-based roles. And then, um, uh, and then there was this new technology. But the, the premise of all of this commercial technology was the fact that it came from a military application originally and so you know when you see when you see these you know action movies or these spy movies or whatever you know you you kind of get a sense that certain things are being recorded like marvel <laughs> yeah like marvel yeah or, or exactly or, or yeah. Or if you watch a movie about, you know, uh, you know, how the FBI are trying to catch terrorists or something like that, you know, they they can listen into calls, right? A new so, Batman movie. Yeah, <laughs> I haven't seen it. I haven't seen <laughs> <Sorry>. it. <laughs> yeah. And so that military grade technology about, you know, recording calls and voice recognition and things like that at that time. It was just was not available in the commercial world. It was only available, you know, in the military. And so, it was about bringing that military technology into the into the commercial world. Um, And so now, you know, if you ring your bank, for example, um, and you've set up the voice recognition, it means that you're just talking to the person at the other end of the phone, asking about, oh, how do I transfer this amount? Or I'd like to set this thing up or that thing up with your bank. Um, and within a few seconds, I think it's 10 or 20 seconds, they will match your voice with the recording that they already have. And then they can verify that it's you. So it's massively reduced fraud in a way that just wasn't possible. But I was doing that, you know, like 20, well, 15 years ago uh, yeah. when nobody existed. Yeah. So it was it was really ahead of its time, um, which is kind of the point I was making about technology in terms of you bring things to the market at the time. Not everybody necessarily wants it or needs it. But over time, it will just become the norm.
0: So basically, we need to remain best friends after this call because there are technological things that you can help me with. This is what you're telling me. I like it. I like it a lot. I'm in. Can't me in. <laughs> after the high point of the IPO, you were faced with kind of, I suppose, the laws of like being made redundant um how did you deal with that like how did you overcome it it was such an
1: eye-opening experience for me um and i took away a lot i mean the first reaction is shock uh disbelief how did i not see this coming you know and i was, I was you know i was in my uh how old was i probably late 20s at that point um and I just didn't really understand how these things worked, you know, I, I I was being told that I was great at my job, I was doing well, you know, I was getting good performance reviews, and then, you know, out of the blue, oh, by the way, your job role is going away, and it made me realise that, actually, businesses need to think about a lot of different things. Uh, And there's always the bottom line to think about, (laughs) but there's also the future vision and what what needs to happen for the company and how it's going to evolve and how how it's going to change. And those decisions can sometimes impact how the teams are structured or how different teams work together. Um, And it isn't always about individual performance because I was performing really, really well. Um, And yeah, so that I think the biggest shock was, but I'm doing really well. Why is this role going away? Um, because they'd made some changes in the region about how the, how the teams are going to work together. And so um, it was a complete shock. And I did get, definitely go through a, a, you know, a dark patch in terms of oh, what does this mean? Maybe I'm no good. Um, have I completely underestimated my abilities here? And it's definitely not, not, not my confidence. Um, but when these things happen, you've got a choice. You, know, you can sit there and feel sorry for yourself <laughs> or you can dust yourself off. And pick yourself up and just keep going forward and that is what i ended up doing and so after working uh in that company and having you know having qualified as a marketing professional having gone into marketing in this in this technology company i thought you know what if i and i still love marketing at that point it was like what i wanted to do still i just said you know what i worked in a company in-house doing marketing but I have never worked for a marketing agency and that's when I started looking at marketing agencies and that's when I got to work with Microsoft as my main client Uh, and so it's amazing how if if somebody had told me when I was made redundant that that was going to happen I wouldn't have worried but the thing is you don't have a crystal ball you never know right so you just have to start making opportunities for yourself um, and networking like crazy um, and putting yourself forward uh, and so yes biggest one of the biggest learnings earlier on in my career I think that stuck with
0: me since it's interesting that you actually mentioned Microsoft um, obviously they're one of the globe's most successful companies what did you kind of learn from dealing with Microsoft and what strategy did you employ to add value to that role yeah
1: so the role that I had in the agency was um, it was called Senior Programme Director, but basically what that meant was working with the European branch, Europe, Middle East, and Africa, EMEA, the EMEA branch uh, of one of their product divisions, which was Microsoft Office. And uh, my main client was running programs to build new, partnerships and new a partner ecosystem around new and emerging technologies and this was at the time where microsoft was bringing some of its early communication and collaboration technology so things like that we use a lot now like zoom and teams and things like that that didn't exist then so it was the early days when that sort of technology was being brought to the market and so if you think about it um when the way that microsoft's model works or did back then? It's evolved since, for sure. But back then, you couldn't buy directly from Microsoft. You would buy from a Microsoft partner, you know, either a reseller or uh, a technology that company that integrated lots of different technology systems, called a systems integrator, for example. Um, and so you you wouldn't buy directly. And and so you have to as Microsoft if you're bringing new technology to market you have to create an ecosystem of of partners around that new technology in order for the product to be successful so I really learned about Microsoft's model which is how you scale and you can reach massive scale by focusing on partners and partnerships and building partner ecosystems around technology Uh, and I think the the best place in the world to learn anything about partner model or the channel model as it's sometimes called is Microsoft because there's no one on the planet that does it better than them. <laughs> so I learned a hell of a lot about how how they go to market and how they do business. Now the models changed a lot since they do have a very strong partner network still but they do sell directly as well now which wasn't the case. So having been at the marketing agency for a, about three years and working solely with Microsoft in, in the in the region I got the opportunity to actually apply for a role inside Microsoft. So not, you know, being an agency, working on an account, but actually going to uh, apply for a job inside Microsoft. Um, and I'd spoken to the, the CEO of the agency, my mentor, somebody I hugely respected who'd really helped me grow and develop. And, and I, I had a hard conversation with him to say, look, I, this opportunity has come about and, you know, you, he could block it, you know, if he wanted to, he could have blocked it. But I think he was in it in terms of the long term thinking, well, if Abby goes to Microsoft, she could end up being a client and, Therefore, I'm going to take a longer-term a longer view and not just block it and say no, you can't go and work for a client. So, you know, I think he was really forward-thinking and and saw the bigger picture, which is something else that I learned from from him as well as many other things. Um, so, yeah. So then I was successful. I managed to get the job, and it felt a little bit like The Apprentice going through the process because uh, there were there were many many people that applied for it, um, but in the end, just just. Obviously, one person could get the role, so it was it was a massive boost in my confidence. And just before I even applied to Microsoft, um, I had self funded uh, an executive MBA. So I was doing a master's in business administration while I was working full time. I was doing it in the evenings and the weekends. I was absolutely knackered, the most exhausted I probably have been. Well, up until I had kids, that is. But yeah, so I, I self-funded that because, I, again, I wanted the independence and the freedom to be able to, you know, go right where I wanted to after doing the MBA. So having the MBA, getting this role uh, in, inside Microsoft, uh, it just it just felt like i finally arrived. You know, working for one of the biggest technology companies in the world. I never imagined in my wildest dreams, given the struggles I had at school, the fact that I messed up my A-levels and got terrible grades and, you know, the struggles to get into university, etc. But it, it just felt like all of that struggle had finally kind of paid off. Um, and so the Girl on Fire track really, really, I feel, embodies that sense of how I was been at the time and the spirit that I had at the time um, and how things are going very well.
0: It's just amazing, to be honest. Your journey is completely inspiring. There's so much that I've learned just from listening to you talk about your journey and the way that wasn't easy for you at school and all the different kind of what I would call roadblocks and hurdles that you've had to overcome in order to get to where you are today. And I suppose working at Microsoft, did you ever experience any kind of like imposter syndrome or feeling of oh I'm here but like you said you know it was beyond your wildest dreams
1: yes uh I did I felt massive imposter syndrome I kept thinking oh they're gonna find out that I can't do it that I don't know what I'm talking about that I don't know what I'm doing you know I I, I had a lot of that to be honest um, the first role I had at Microsoft was very close to what I had I had been working on when I was in the agency So I, what helped was I had already a good understanding of the subject matter, and I had good connections with people inside the company who were working in that area already. So I wasn't completely starting from scratch, which really, really helped. Um, But working inside a company versus being on the outside, being an agency or consulting firm working for the company, is very, very different. You're living and breathing the culture every day. Um, and the accountability is, is different because ultimately you are the one that is responsible for a program, a campaign, a goal, an outcome. And if it doesn't go to plan, you know, you're, you're next on the line. So, uh it was it was it was a very big experience um so the, the first job was a little bit of a soft introduction i would say because i was already familiar with the territory um the second role i did though at microsoft i was there for 11 years at the end so quite a big chunk of time the second role that i did was head of customer experience and so i went i decided that i wanted to work in um <clears throat> the largest subsidiary outside of the us is the uk Uh, What it was, I don't know what it is now. Uh, And uh, I was reporting into the vice president of the UK at the time, or the CEO of the UK at the time. The subsidiary then was around 3,000 people. And that role was to be on the leadership team reporting to the CEO of Microsoft UK um, to do customer experience. And it was customer experience across all the product lines of everything from Xbox and Hotmail, as it was at the time uh hotmail still around (laughs) uh through (laughs) to microsoft office (laughs) and windows uh and you know end server technology so all of those different technologies uh, and all customer types from consumers to small businesses to large enterprises to you know public sector and not-for-profit organizations so it really was this very complex matrix of products and different types of customers or audiences Uh, uh and it was Mind-blowing, uh, and that was also like the Apprentice, because actually I think it ended up being something like sixteen screened candidates that were deemed, you know, suitable to apply, uh, and then the sixteen of us eventually get down to four, then down to two, part of the last two, and then we had to go through some extra hoops in terms of interviews and meeting people and doing presentations and all this kind of stuff, uh, and then finally I. Um, was successful in landing the role Um, so I think that was probably the most scared (laughs) I've ever been uh, being walking into a boardroom looking around the room being one of the very few females in the room being the youngest person in the room as well surrounded by all these people that looked older wiser (laughs) and most of them were male as well So that was an incredible experience, incredibly scary, and the biggest imposter syndrome I think I've had um, throughout my career. Uh, And I probably didn't speak much for about two, three months. (laughs) I was really listening and observing and learning and taking things in. um, And really, I think, although I was fearful of speaking up at the beginning, it actually paid dividends in the end. because. What I did was I spent time with every single leader around that boardroom separately, individually, spending time getting to know them, their team, their problems, their challenges, their priorities. Uh, And so when I had a really good mental map of what was going on and how things worked and like, you know, where were the kind of power networks within that, within that boardroom and who listens to who and who influences who, you know. I was able to come back after like two, three months of all of that learning and absorbing all of that, knowing how to present to them, how to position things to really get them to listen and take notice and act and how I could tie what I was trying to do with they were trying to do and make it sound like it was a no-brainer for them to do this because it was kind of connected to what they were trying to do anyway and if I hadn't have done that if I'd gone in you know guns blazing saying right we need to do this and this is my strategy this is my plan I really don't think it would have gone down well. Be such like,
0: an important really <laughs> yeah such an important point to make. Um, I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier if it's okay During your time with Microsoft, you took maternity leave twice. Did you feel supported by them during that time?
1: I had maternity leave. So while
0: I was in that job, the customer experience job, I had
1: my son, um, who's now 10, nearly 11, uh, a long time ago. Uh, And I took eight months off. I was going to take six, but in the end, I took eight months off and when I came back, my manager at the time said to me, "Hey, you've done so well in this customer experience job; like it's still there for you if you want it. However, we've got other amazing opportunity that we think someone like you could really get your teeth stuck into. Um, how would you to like to take on Microsoft's fight against Google <laughs> on as your next role?" I was like, what? Uh, okay, I, I don't know. <laughs>
0: I was waiting for you to bring that up
1: so sometimes you just have to say okay I'm going to give this a go I have no idea what it means because it sounded really complex really difficult really a really juicy challenge uh, but also one that I would grow and learn from. So yes, that's what, so yes, they were very supportive and they, you know, I even got a promotion when I came back, which was incredible. Brilliant. Uh, that was the experience of, of, of coming back to maternity, after maternity leave, you know, into Microsoft with my first child.
0: Absolutely brilliant. So we're now going to move into section three, a progressive future. Can you tell us a little bit about the final piece of music, which is Nina Simone, Feeling Good? I chose
1: uh, Nina Simone, Feeling Good, because, well, first of all, it's incredibly soulful. It's incredibly uplifting. And it feels, when I listen to it, it gives hope about a new beginning and a new day starting. And the future ahead is is bright. And what's ahead is, is going to be good and, and amazing. And so that song, I feel inspired by. And when i'm really nervous before a big presentation i play that track it gets me into a really really good sense of feeling calm and feeling positive and feeling optimistic um because sometimes you need like an anchor like that to be able to just ground you a little bit you know if you're going to a big presentation or doing something important that you're feeling a little bit nervous about so that is also my my anchor music Uh, i absolutely love it
0: i love it too and i'm sure all of our listeners will also love it. So moving on, I wanted you to paint a little picture for us. So you're working at Facebook Meta in global operations at a time where competition between these massive global technological leadians is heightened. Where is the HQ?
1: Okay, so the global headquarters is in um, San Francisco, Palo Alto uh, in California. the the technologies that I've been working on when I started um, at Meta were in the UK. So uh, after leaving Microsoft, I went to join a early stage startup and uh, it was three people. I joined the founder and they were looking for somebody to come in and to take on the the role of CEO and commercialize the the product uh, and to to, to bring it into, into large enterprises. And I was doing that role for uh, for a number of years. Uh, and I was really happy that I was, wasn't looking to move. You know, we, we'd done some great uh, fundraising, and we were ready to move on to the next stage of growth for the company. Uh, and around that time, I got a call from what was called Facebook at the time, it's now called Meta, uh, about about a role. And, you know, when Facebook calls, you, you listen, right? And like Even though I wasn't looking at a move and I was really, really happy where I was, um, I, took, I took the call. And I wasn't expecting to be interested in the role. But when they described the role to me, I thought, wow, this sounds amazing. It was the opportunity to work on a startup within Facebook in the B2B space, the business-to-business space. Uh, and it was around how companies can better connect employees, can better engage employees, can build better cultures and build better communities by using this technology. And the, the product is called Workplace. And I'd heard of Workplace before. And because I'd worked on things like Microsoft Office before, um, and really understood the kind of the world of productivity and how technology can really fuel productivity and drive economies and create more, better connections between people and companies, I had an idea of what this, what this market was and I understood kind of the needs of the market and I understood the lay of the land in terms of the competitive landscape around the type, this type of technology. Um, so the role was workplace, startup with inside, inside Facebook, which is very exciting, but it really was the opportunity to have a blank sheet of paper and bring in all of the experiences that I've had throughout my career, you know, the startup experiences, the the partner ecosystem experiences, the customer experience uh, role that I had for many, many years. And then the role that I had in terms of, you know, Microsoft versus Google and and everything that came with that. Um, To be able to bring all of that experience into one role within a company like Facebook. And I just, it was just such an amazing opportunity. I just, I thought there's no way I I can let this one go. These opportunities don't come by every day. And so it was a really, really hard decision to, to leave the, the startup. But really, I, I felt like I, ha- I had to do it. I couldn't say no. Um, and so, yes, the, the headquarters was in London. The rest is history.
0: <laughs> obviously, we've had COVID. And obviously, during summer of 2020, the brutal killing of George Floyd took place. Um, I feel that that put DEI at the forefront for many corporates. How has Facebook and Meta kind of responded to that?
1: Yeah, there, it was such a monumental moment and it brought to light the the depth and the level of institutional racism across the world. And it was so unfortunate that it took that for the world to really listen when it, it's it been going on. And there are many other deaths and it's been going on for so long. And It was just incredibly shocking that that's what it took for the world to sit up and take notice. And from Facebook and Meta's point of view, there was so much that sparked in terms of more that we did internally within the company, uh, how we supported black businesses around the world, um, how we've created diversity councils now, how we've created Uh, product councils, making sure that we have Black representation in terms of how we're designing our products and how we're thinking about products. Um, For the last two years, the company um, now publishes its annual diversity report, which is public. It's published publicly. Anybody can read it. And we have just... We've always set our standards high. But in a way, this was a way for us to go the next step, which is to hold ourselves accountable and to show you know, openly what we've done, what we're doing, what we still want to do and need to do. Um, And so it's it's driven a lot, a lot of changes. Um, You know, immediately after the event, we created a lot of safe spaces for people to talk and share their own experiences. And some of those were closed groups and some of them were open groups where people could just listen in and learn from people's lived experiences. Um, I spent a lot of time with people just listening and understanding and learning myself about, much more about Black history um, and, and the years and years uh, of institutional racism across d- different countries. I mean, we are a big US company, but it's not only US, it's, it's everywhere around the world. And so I took time to educate myself and to share that, that with my teens. And um, it, was, it was a really stark moment, but mm-hmm. it has sparked a lot of positive change I think not only in our company but in the world
0: definitely I mean I think a lot of the time this is what I tend to hear and I do feel that these ambitions are great but I also feel that they're not often matched by budget mm. do you know if Facebook has put any kind of financial resources into place to help with this situation also to boost DEI
1: yeah yeah, we have. I mean, there are many, many different things that we're doing. So there's black talent and what we're doing around finding black talent and then recruiting and growing and making black talent successful inside the company and also in the tech industry. Um, in terms of actual kind of you know, money and financial, um, you know, financial initiatives. So we are on track at the moment to meet our goal of spending over a billion dollars with diverse own businesses. And this is donating to underrepresented creators and nonprofits. It's about promoting black businesses on the on the platform, um, which then empowers and enables those black businesses to grow and use, you know, because Facebook is and, and Instagram are big platforms for people to grow their businesses. So we got a huge amount to support black businesses. Um, yes, yeah, so there's a load of, of different things that, that we've done. So yes, we do put our money where our mouth is and we, do um, support in many many different ways
0: I actually do think that those are all incredible measures I suppose one of the most difficult things being Afrocar being in the UK and and uh, being lucky enough to have had a really supportive family that made sure I went to school obviously first in my family to do that and to go to university but I do kind of feel like There is kind of some kind of dislocation between what is happening in real life. And I do get a bit concerned because there are so many organizations and companies such as Facebook, and there's loads of them. It's not just Facebook. And there's so much money, but it just doesn't actually manifest. It's almost like there's like a a really tiny group of people who might work in specific areas who are are Black or Afro-Caribbean. Who who get a bit of support, but it doesn't do anything to address the very serious underlying issues. Because if you're kind of trapped in this kind of poverty trap, and you're not able to even get to work, which is what I tend to find with a lot of the young people that I mentor that work in tech, it's almost like the companies they are solving this problem here, but they're not solving the reason that they can't even start on that journey because. One of the things that I have found with a lot of my colleagues and the people that I work with is because of where they grew up, because of the school they went to, even if they were to take several years out and kind of get a bit lost, they have friends that now work at so-and-so. So we tend to be quite excluded from those kind of nuanced um, connections and opportunities. So I do think these are great but I would love to see companies such as Facebook and all the big ones, Amazon, et cetera, et cetera, maybe try and do more things that are very much more community-based and might not be necessarily specifically related to tech because if you don't have food um, or anywhere to live, then you're not able to even think about the journey of of business and, and so on. But going back to you, and looking at your own teams are you kind of happy with the levels of diversity on your own team
1: there's definitely more that can be done I I've you know I've no doubt about that and I think this is something that it, it, it's not you just implement a program and that that's it this is something that everybody across the entire company everybody in my team we have top of mind and we are making improvements all all the time if I think about the amount of effort just in the last year and what and how that's translated into kind of actual real improvement Um, thinking about the black leaders that we have in the company in the last year we've increased that by 38% just in the last year so there are many things that we do and that we hold ourselves accountable for to do. So that's that's just one example, um, and we've got a goal to increase increase that overall to to thirty percent in the next five years. And so, brilliant. That that will then drive a multitude of things. So there's something called the Year Up program. The Year Up program is internships for people who don't have university degrees, who perhaps have dropped out of school, um, specifically for people in underrepresented groups. And the idea is to do that community outreach that you're talking about for people who would never even dream or imagine or even think that it was a possibility for them to work in a tech company. And so there's programs like that specifically targeted to that outreach in the community, giving people the experiences to come in for six months and and learn and work on projects and kind of get an idea of how this whole thing works and then they're making connections uh, and then we look to how we can bring them in in the future um, in terms of bringing them into actual roles in the company on a more permanent basis and so there is a lot that we are doing and there is always
0: more that we can do. That's absolutely phenomenal. Um, I'm not sure if you're aware but BBI has a charter and a mark. Would Meta consider signing up to that?
1: So I've looked at the the BBI charter. It's something that that has been shared with me recently. And there are a number of different organisations that have really important charters. And so as a company, we want to make sure that we aren't just just subscribing to one charter, but we want to be able to address many charters and look at underrepresentation in a really, really broad way. And part of that is things like publishing our diversity annual report, and being very accountable to everybody across multiple countries around the world because we are a global business. Um, So what I want to do and what I will do is continue to be involved with with BBI. I wanna bring people that I work with to help and support BBI. I think about the networks that I have, I'm involved in and making those networks accessible and available to the BBI thinking and whether that's mentorship programs or whether it's how we help black owned businesses and startups get more access to funding there's a lot a lot that can be done so i think the question of will we sign the charter i'll look into it i don't know if that is the answer i think there are lots of things that we can do and we will do um, that i will be sponsoring and making sure that we
0: get more involved in the bbi going forward brilliant now, we ask all our guests to make a pledge in the d space that they can deliver. What is yours? Although you do sound like you're doing a lot already.
1: Yeah, I, I think some of the things I've touched on are definitely part of my pledge. So there's the mentorship angle and being really proactive in, in terms of mentorship. And something that I've done more recently is instead of waiting to be asked by somebody, oh, could you be more mental? i'm much more proactively going out and thinking about who are the underrepresented people that i can help and support so either in a one-to-one mentoring um relationship or maybe it's through the networks that i created or or that i helped build um, during being a ceo and an entrepreneur there are you know there are things i can do to help and i i'm going to continue to do that Um, more involvement with the BBI that's something that I've really thought a lot about since learning more about the BBI I think there's more that I can do with that, that people that I know can be more involved in BBI so that's also is something else um, and then there's practical things like which which we are which I am doing already but like just really this really brings it to light which is when we're thinking about how we're hiring talent we will only look at pe- a diverse slate as we call it you know we will not move to interview until we have a diverse slate and so that will take the recruiting team longer well that's fine I'd rather wait longer and have a diverse slate than rush to get a non-diverse slate through and then end up with a candidate that isn't that we don't have enough um, underrepresented um, groups within the team Um, I think about equity and inclusion so there's the equity piece as well and and um, I'm sponsoring equity diversity equity and inclusion programs inside the company. And I'm going to continue to do that, Um, encouraging new ways of doing things, learn from organizations like the BBI and bring those learnings into the organization um, and and hold ourselves accountable to a very high bar. And I think those are probably the main things. There's a really great book that I read a couple of years ago uh, called Lift As You Climb, and it was written by Viv um, Groskopp. She's a writer, a stand-up comedian, a radio and TV presenter. And she she talks about this, this, this term lift as you climb. Um, and she thinks she, she wasn't sure the origin of where it came from, but she talks about where it probably came from. So there was there was an African-American activist um, who grew up in Memphis in the late 19th century. Um, and her name was Mary Church Terrell and her parents were freed slaves. And she was the first African-American woman to earn a college degree. Uh, And then she went on to be the first president of the National Association of Colored Women. And she used this phrase a lot, lift as you climb. The book was written and inspired by that. And that's, I think, something that I try to do as I've grown through my career, is it's not enough just for you and the people you know to be successful. I I genuinely believe that I'm not successful unless I'm helping other people be successful as well. And this Lift As You Climb motto is something that I really do live by um, and it's something that I talk about a lot. So that is also part of my pledge, Lift As You Climb, but specifically in relation to black leaders, black founders, and black talents.
0: Sadly, I think that's all we have time for, but I could literally sit and chat to you all day Thank you, Abigail, for joining me. Thank you, Eunice, for having me and for this
1: amazing conversation. I felt really privileged to be asked. I've seen the other podcast speakers who are incredible and I was really inspired by listening to the other
0: podcasts. So thank you for having me. It's a real honour. I really just loved it because... You were just opening up about your fascinating life and your remarkable relationships and future aspirations. I know this episode will stay with all of us for such a long time. Please join us next time on BBI's You're On Mute, where we hear from yet another icon, business leader, or potentially a famous celebrity. Until then, please subscribe, review, and leave your feedback where you get your podcasts. If you're a leader and like to share your journey and opinion on social justice and a fairer society, please contact us at info at Until next time, goodbye.